Sometimes I feel like I belong everywhere and sometimes I feel that I belong nowhere. I am the hippie in the corporate office and so that means sometimes my views are not shared. And I am the corporate person in the deeply humanitarian social impact circles and sometimes that means I am persona non grata or at least I'm challenged deeply but I love being challenged. I want to continually grow and be better and reflect and help others do the same. Um, but I will not stand for being criticized for it or being called a hypocrite or being um, told you really need to figure out which side you should be on, right? I don't, I don't need to pick a side, you pick a side. I don't need to pick a side. Um, I'm getting the beauty of all of these worlds and yes, I may evolve and change. I'm a different person today than I was a few years ago. Um, and, and, but I will say a, a part of the um, process that some would call reconciliation that I go through is about constantly rerouting in my values. Hello everyone, this is Alex Gonzalez and you are listening to The Disruptor Studio. The Disruptor Studio is a series of deep, non-traditional business conversations with people who inspire transformation, innovation, and greatness. And you definitely heard that in just those few seconds from Cat Cole, one of the guests of one of the original Disruptor Studios that we actually filmed and you can still find in our Disruptor Studio YouTube channel, so make sure to check it out and subscribe. But now we have come here to your favorite podcast platform, and we'll be coming to you every two weeks with some people that you've heard before, but with many new guests, and I'm very excited about that. But we thought for episode one, we would go to, I guess, a new classic. So here we are late in 2018, where we brought Cat Cole to the actual Disruptor Studio to film this session. And some of you may know Cat, and some of you may not, but Cat is a corporate executive at Focus Brands, but she is so much more. She's a wife and mother of a growing family. She's very active in her social causes, and you could see her talking about them on her social media. And she also is very supportive of the entrepreneurial community and works with them and helps promote entrepreneurs all the time. But the thing I remember most about Kat, and every time I interact with her, it always comes up, it's how authentic Kat is. She is the definition of authentic leadership. As you listen to this interview that's coming up on the Disruptor Studio, I think you will feel that authenticity come through, which is why it was so memorable, and which is why I am thrilled to share this again. So here it is, Kat Cole on the Disruptor Studio. All right, Kat, well, welcome to the Disruptor Studio, and thank you for the Jamba Juice uh, yes. this morning. You're welcome, you're welcome. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. So, and we talked a little bit backstage. Uh, you know, I was telling Kat that, you know, you could never be cool with your kids, especially when they're teenagers, but my uh, high school son thought it was cool that I had Kat, and it was a connected through Travis Scott, because he's a huge Jamba Juice fan. So Obsessed with Jamba about, Juice, so yes. We do not pay him, he just loves Jamba. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get going, you have an amazing story. And, and, and one of the, that's an inspirational story. I know I could connect with so much of it, but let's start with it today. And I think so many people, uh, today obviously people were connecting with Focus Brands. And, uh, and people probably do every day, may not even realize it. So talk a little bit about Focus Brands and your role there. So uh, Focus Brands is, a uh, 
company of companies. We are one of the largest franchisors and licensors of fast casual limited service food brands in the world. Uh, most people have not heard of Focus Brands, um, but they've heard of the brands that we have in our portfolio. So we have a hometown brand, Moe's. Welcome to Moe's! <laughs> uh, Southwest Grill, and we've had that brand for quite some time, over 900 restaurants uh, in the United States and a few countries outside. McAllister's Deli, Schlotzky's, uh, just fantastic brands that have grown throughout the U.S. for quite some time. Carvel Ice Cream, an 85-year-old ice cream brand that if you grew up in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, your parents, your grandparents ate Fudgy the Whale and Cookie Puss and things that people here in Georgia, Atlanta have never heard of. Uh, but it's a, it's a legacy brand and company in that market and it's a huge grocery brand. Uh, we're in um, grocery stores with frozen ice cream cakes uh, all over the country. And so you'll go into those, the deli and you'll see the ice cream cakes, Carvel ice cream, that's our company. Uh, Auntie Anne's Pretzels, which is the largest actual franchise in our company with over 1,500 franchise locations in over 40 countries. Cinnabon, the world's most disturbingly delicious brand, <laughs> uh, with over uh, 1,400 locations in almost 60 countries around the world, and uh, most recently acquired Jamba Juice. Yeah. So I hope I got them all. It's <laughs> seven, uh, seven businesses. And we grow through franchising, couple billion in sales uh, in those countries around the world, almost 6,500 locations, um, just under 2,000 franchise owners. So it's a lot to manage, um, but we serve and delight millions and millions of people around the world with fun for you, sugar, fat, have it once in a while items, all the way to Jamba Juice, which is now giving us a company in the portfolio to truly bring a healthier lifestyle um, to people in a way that's much more accessible. And your chief operating officer and president of North yes, America. So, so what's a typical I, mean, I don't even want to say day, but what's a typical week for you? What, what's, how do you uh, uh, lead there at uh, Focus Brands? You know, a typical week depends on if we're in acquisition mode or not. Um, when we are doing diligence and working on acquiring a company, or now that we have one, working on integrating it, my time is spent um, a bit more on that particular brand and what's going on with the team, you know, leadership, culture, strategy, growth plans. Um, development, uh, but otherwise it is spent with the presidents and heads of marketing and heads of operations of the brands that I run. Uh, also run our licensing division. The president of that division reports to me as well, which is where we bring branded products to grocery stores and convenience stores and hotel chains. So Holiday Inn Express has Cinnabon product. Pizza Hut is now delivering Cinnabon product. Auntie Anne's has products in many venues. So we have this entire um, small company within our company that helps yeah. bring those brands to life in other channels. So it just, it depends on, it depends on the week, it depends right. on the day. Right. Uh, it might be meeting with our board or our CEO and CFO on strategic initiatives or going deep into one of our brands um, because of big things going on in that brand. And so how, the you came in uh, to focus through Cinnabon. Correct. Yeah, I um, started as president of Cinnabon. Yeah. I came in, I was 31. I had been at Hooters for 15 years. Right. 
um, had helped grow that company, was vice president at that company at that time, doing around 800 million in revenue, and then had been recruited by an Atlanta-based private equity firm, Rourke Capital, to work in the portfolio. And they own Focus, and Cinnabon was a part of Focus, and they asked me to interview for that role, and I didn't think I'd get the job. I thought, oh, this will just be good to get on people's radar. Yeah. They'll never offer a girl like me an opportunity like that, right. um, and they did. And uh, so, yeah, I eventually came over as president of Cinnabon and helped turn that brand around uh, over four years coming out of the recession, which was a really interesting experience yeah. considering it was a mall-based business during the recession. So. Negative, um, negative trends in foot traffic, years of negative sales, not to mention it's a brand and a company that is known for delicious, wholesome sugar and fat, which flies in the face of consumer trends. And this was at the height of the Adkins crisis. We call it the crisis, <laughs> the Adkins trend. The nice thing is Rourke owns Adkins also, so we're super well diversified, whether you want no sugar or all the sugar. Um, but it was a huge challenge, you right. know, coming into that business at that time with what it stood for and figuring out a way to honor its roots, right. be super authentic and transparent, but bold in allowing it to grow. Right. And that's the fun, sexy PR media part. But there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff underneath of restructuring the franchise system and um, renegotiating mall leases at a time when malls. Um, really were a question mark of how would how they would evolve, and that was before Amazon is what it is today. It was just starting. Uh, so turning around Cinnabon was a really interesting and cool and educational exercise in um, leadership, culture, economics, um, partnership mentality. We did a lot of licensing and strategic partnerships to help accelerate the growth of that brand and other channels to help fund the work we needed in the legacy brick and mortar business to help turn it around. And then as the company grew, I grew. Uh, I took over the Global Channels division, licensing all the brands. And then 60 days before I left on maternity leave, um, I was promoted to president and COO. Yeah, that's outstanding. It's, uh, so the, uh, going back to Cinnabon, though, because I think if we talk about the indulgence and, and kind of the conflict with being healthy, but you really just kind of faced into that, because I, I believe there were even some initiatives about how do we make Cinnabon healthy. How, how, did, how did you? grow an a brand when people wanted to be healthy? and Because yeah. I think there's an element of you being authentic to the brand which came through on that. There were, there were three components. Um, one, the brand had, and still does, what most companies would beg to have. High level of differentiation. Right? There is no number two. There's, it's not like a McDonald's and a Burger King thing. There's Cinnabon and then who? So it, it had, despite its challenges, what most of us beg to have in our businesses and companies, brand love and affinity and a high degree of differentiation. What it was lacking or what was actually reducing was relevance to people's lives today. You know, big portions, in malls, you know, there were a few elements that made it less and less relevant. It was differentiated, people loved it and they remembered it with great fondness, but they were coming less and less frequently, which is a recipe for reduced sales. So, um, first, I had to recognize what was not a problem, what was actually a strength, and how to play that up and make sure we didn't violate that special thing, the brand love, which was wholesome ingredients. It may be full of sugar and fat, but it's made with real sugar and fat. There aren't, uh, it's, it's made by hand in those franchise businesses. And so what I didn't want to do was hurt the few things that were going well for the business. Then there was the unit level economics of the right. business model. Um, but broadly, to your question of authenticity and relevance, 
what we had to do was decide, what are we? And what we realized through um, no access to robust research, just our own scrappy use of our teams and talking to our customers and staying close to our employees and our owners was we're an indulgence. Yeah. Like, you know, no kidding, right? But, <laughs> but owning that we are an indulgence. And what does that mean if you are in this world for people's moment of being a little bad? One, if you're going to be a conscious uh, consumer company and be thoughtful and caring about the world and everything that's going on in the world, whether it's obesity, health, wellness, access to nutrition, the question was, how can I feel good about running this business? And the way I can feel good is, one, protect the good ingredients that are in it and the fact that it's made from scratch in the business. I mean, we make cheesecake at home, right? It's got more calories in a cheesecake than what I would make at home. Um, so it was honoring what was good about it, but then I went on national television and told people, do not eat this every day, right? This isn't your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner. This is your moment of escape. And if you want to be bad, yeah. do it with something that's so worth it. Like, don't waste it on a bag of chips, no offense to any chip people <laughs> in the group, but um, I don't want to waste my discretionary calories and in a recession, my discretionary income on something that isn't worth that moment. And so we decided to lean into that position, which is, it is an indulgence, it is a treat, it is meant for once in a while when you feel like treating yourself. So that was one piece of just authentic leadership that was refreshing, because then for the critics, what do the critics have to say once you come out and say exactly what they're saying? It's not great for you, it's full of sugar and fat, don't eat it all the time. There's not much else for them to say. And so that is such a powerful leadership technique to just own what is true about who you are to get the distraction of the critics you know, out of the way. And that, that wasn't why we did it, it was just an outcome. The second thing was to say, then if we are an indulgence, what are the ways we can make indulging a bit more relevant for today's consumer? And the answer was, no shock, right? Shrink the portions. Make some smaller ones so people don't have to buy the one that's the size of their face if that's not what they want. Um, the brand had smaller portions, but not consistently, and they didn't mandate it. And so we moved to the mini bond, which isn't mini, it's just small compared to the giant one, so it's called mini. Yeah, yeah then to a bite that's only 90 calories, and then launched other still super Cinnabon, but less indulgent versions of our brand while investing in things like beverage um, that were also portable and indulgent, but less sugar forward. But it was still honoring the brand. And um, there were two interesting examples. One, there was a project called Project 599 that I often talk about. Um, and how many calories do you think are in the classic Cinnabon cinnamon roll? The big one, that's the size of your face. What do you think? 2,000, 1,300, 1,500. It's like an auction. It's, it's only 880. That just made 880 sound small, and it's not, obviously. Um, but nonetheless, 880 is a lot if you're marketing yourself as a snack. Right? That's, a, that's a meal's worth of calories for today's consumer. Um, and, and so the, the company, rightfully so, said, we should reduce the calories. They went to the consumer and said, if we reduce the calories of the classic cinnamon roll, right. would you be happy? And of course everyone said yes. Who doesn't want to have their bond and eat it too? Like, who, who doesn't want to be bad for no consequence? <laughs> um, and, and I learned this really important lesson. This initiative started before I came on board, but I would kill it very quickly for two reasons. Um, one, we were asking the wrong question. Yeah. 
And when you're a disruptor, when you're innovating, when you have limited resources, time, money, energy to invest, you've got to make sure that the bets you're making are actually going to drive results. And the problem was we asked the question, will you be happy if we reduce the calories? And people said yes. What we didn't ask was, will you buy more? if we reduce the calories, because we're a business, and the goal is to have people come more often or come visit us if they felt we weren't an option for them before, right? Increase frequency, increase trial, drive sales. It's the only way we can hire more people, pay people better, right, is to have a, a healthier business. And, and we um, tricked ourselves into thinking because the customer answered one of our questions that was poorly structured to affirm our initiative. Um, we like barreled down this path of reducing the calories. And, and so that was one thing is we asked the wrong question. We didn't ask, will it drive sales? We asked, will you be happy? We just affirmed what we believed would be true. The other issue was that we were about to create a, a secondary problem. If calories really were a problem, and let's be honest, no one's coming to Cinnabon for their diet. Um, if calories really were a problem, the only way to keep something the size that it is in food and reduce the calories is to take out the real ingredients and put in artificial sweeteners. And so if we didn't have an ingredient problem before, we were about to. And, and so this, it was an interesting example of the flawed logic, but the best of intentions that teams, especially innovators, have when they're trying to do what's right for the business, when they're trying to do something that they think will break through, stand out, and really mean something to their customer, sometimes, even though it feels good, reducing calories felt good. But it wasn't a path that anyone was going to care about or spend their money on. And if I had allowed that to happen, I would have failed the company. And I went to the team and said, we're killing Project 599. And, and you can, many of you can respect this. I, for that moment, was like that leader that comes in and people would say, she doesn't get it. She's the new person coming in, just killing everything that we have going on. But, and I knew it would be unpopular, but I had a higher order sense of allegiance to them that I would be failing them if I let them do this work, let it roll out, knowing full well it would not drive sales. And then they would high five each other and say, we did our job, it was operations, they didn't execute, right? Or it was the owner, or it's not our fault, as opposed to we all should keep asking the higher order question. Will it accomplish what we want it to accomplish? Which, yes, one way to get there might be reducing the calories, but what we want to accomplish is driving transactions and sales. And so how do we get there? And the answer was, we can reduce the calories by shrinking the portions. And oh, by the way, that also makes it cheaper and more accessible. And so. That was Absolutely. an example of being authentic and leaning into and I think it's so, so much of you through your, through your, through your life, that, that one of that visionary drive and then that authenticity kind of flows into your work, which kind of drives so many decisions. You, you made an interesting comment uh, in, in terms of when you're interviewing for Cinnabon about, you know, well, why would a girl like me, they consider someone like me uh, for that role. And so let's go back a little bit then, because, you know, when you were, when you were a teenager or you're kind of your first job, you know, uh, maybe president of Cinnabon or no, your role probably wasn't, you know, in the immediate window. So talk a little bit about how kind of, how those catalysts of your early life, you know. Yeah, um, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, on the north side, very rural. Um, and eventually, uh, when I was nine years old, my mom came to me and said, you know, that's it, I'm done, we're leaving, and we left my father. And I, I often tell this story because I want people to know how common it is, fortunately or unfortunately, 
Um, but my dad was an alcoholic, and um, both sides of my family were not great influences on us socially or culturally in a way that my mom wanted for her three daughters. Um, I'm the oldest of three girls. And so we left my dad. And um, when my mom came to me and said, we're leaving at the age of nine, I didn't cry and I didn't get upset. I looked at her and said, what took you so long? At the age of nine, imagine a nine-year-old knowing what the right thing to do is long before you take action as a parent and then affirming that when you finally have the courage to make that call. Um, and of course, I didn't know it was a business lesson when I was nine, but as I would, <laughs> as I would sit in chairs like this and yeah. have people ask how you or why you or why so young, it forced me to reflect on things that were formative and um, realizing that the people who are closest to the action, in this case, it was the child, but in business, it's the transaction, know what the right thing to do is long before the leader does. Um, but it, the secret in being successful as a leader of a family, of a community, of a government, um, of a company, of a team, is staying as close to the people who are as close to the action as often as you can. So you compress the amount of time between they know what the right thing to do is and when you know what the right thing to do is. Um, because the issue is people who are closest to the action, people in the community, children of a family, employees in a company, lack the language to articulate the problem or solution. You know, they just don't have the, the development to do that, and they lack the authority to do something about it even if they could articulate the problem or the solution. And so staying close, and this goes back to this um, Project 599 example, mm -hmm staying close to the action and seeking the true truth. Not trying to affirm what we think is right, but seeking the true truth of someone's experience and then you can find the patterns and that helps you prioritize what you should go after. And so we left my dad and I, I had this amazing leadership example in my mom. She, she had the courage to leave even though she didn't have the financial resources. Um, she fed us on a food budget of $10 a week for three years. And I often joke, this was not in the 20s or 30s, right? When that yeah. was the meal budget for people. This was yeah. the late 80s, early 90s. It was just amazing to, to know that that was my first line example of leadership. So um, that gave me this very high bar of what is expected of humans and certainly women of how to show up in the world. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then I started working when I was 15 years old in, in a mall and yeah. got into college, first person in my family ever on either side to get into college and became a waitress, uh, a hostess at Hooters at yeah. 17, waitress at 18. And that's when the whole theory of me going to college, which I did eventually start college uh, and was an engineering major, uh, there, that was going to lead to a path of some professional dream, but as Hooters would grow, so would I, and that's where the path started to diverge a little bit. Yeah, and so going to Hooters, um, you, you know, so there's some, of course, in the situation you're in, I could absolutely relate to this growing up as well, too, where it's how uh, you're making these trade-offs of, well, I need to do my work, you gotta go to school, and there's some realities that you gotta, the trade-offs you gotta make. Um, but Hooters created a catalyst for you, and there's a decision point about a call you got to, Got Australia. Yeah. So, so talk about that moment and how that call came in and how it started an incredible chain of events. Yeah, um, it's just so funny. You have these pivotal moments in your yeah. life, and when you're in them, it's just like, oh, this is really cool. And then you look back and go, wow, I'm so glad I said yes to that. Um, I was 19. I had worked every job in the restaurant, and that company was growing. And one of my tips for people, especially who are early in their career, who look at my journey and say, you know, wow, how do I have a career like yours? Yes, I, I worked incredibly hard, 
yes, I did some special things, and a lot of people gave me great opportunities that I'm so grateful for, but do not miss the point, the part of the story that is the company was growing. Growing companies have growing opportunities, and that is just the math of opportunity that people shouldn't ignore. Uh, and Hooters was growing, and they were opening restaurants all around the world, and in order to open restaurants around the world, they needed existing employees who knew all the jobs to help go train new employees. There's nothing about that actually that's unusual. It has happened in restaurants and retail for decades and decades and decades. What's unusual about it is that I was so young and that it was Hooters. That's what gets people to go, oh, this is a good clickbait, <laughs> you know, good interesting story. Uh, but I had never been on a plane. Uh, I had only been out of the state of Florida twice in my life uh, for cheerleading competitions and once for uh, a possibly underage drinking trip to Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> Possibly, I might have been right on the line, I just can't remember. Um, and even though this story was when I was 19, so it <laughs> kind of tells you there. Uh, and um, it, was, it was fascinating because my manager of that location called me and said, uh, we're putting together a training team to open the first of our franchises in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, and we'd love for you, we'd love for you to go. And uh, I said yes. I didn't think twice, even though I had never been on a plane, I did not have a passport, I had never opened a restaurant. And that's unusual. It's unusual for young people and it's certainly unusual for women um, because the, you know, the typical style is to say, I'm not ready yet, right. Right? I don't have all the pieces. Um, but for whatever reason, the courage built from having to help take care of my sisters after we left my father, seeing my mother's example, who knows why, yeah. um, but I said yes. And then uh, I figured out how to go get a passport expedited in 24 hours. I bought my first plane ticket, I flew to Miami, I stood in line at the passport agency, got my passport expedited, and a few weeks later, left for Sydney, Australia, and opened my first international franchise. That's, so, do you th so those moments probably happen in so many people's lives and they don't even realize it, um, that, that it's there. Do you think that with everything you, went, you were going through as a teenager and, and what your mom did, if you, if you were to just hypothesize and said, what if I, th things were totally different and I was able to go to any school I wanted and all that, do you, think you, do you think that early part of your life shaped your ability to just lean into a decision like that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know how, how yeah. it, it didn't. I mean, it was such an unusual thing to be offered at such an unusually young age. Yeah. Um, and with no prior experience, the only explanation I have for why I said yes and felt comfortable was yeah. seeing the example of my mom. Yeah. And I remember that often because we are all that person to someone, right? Whether we're a parent or a friend or a boss or an older sister or brother, um, uncle or aunt, cousin, whatever, um, the behaviors that we demonstrate are leaving these impressions on people around us. Doesn't matter if they're young or old um, or more seasoned in their journey. Right. Um, they're, they're leaving an impression, they're making a mark. Right. And um, certainly watching my mom work hard and figure things out with no resources, it had to at least subconsciously, if not consciously, give me the courage yeah. to try new things. Not to mention, I just wanted to be somewhere different tomorrow yeah. than I was today. I wanted to escape that world, that past, those origins, right. and so I said yes to pretty much everything. <laughs> you know, you want me to go to another restaurant and help open it? Great. You want me to go to another country? Awesome. You want me to learn to train dogs? Okay. Um, truly, anything that felt like learning was a path to being somewhere different. 
Um, and, and I think that served me well, at least at that stage. And, and it seems like being comfortable too, where it, it doesn't sound like you were even clear what that end answer was. So I go to Australia, which means five years from now, I'll be doing this. It, you were very open to just yeah. the ambiguous which is a great opportunity. Yeah. I thought Australia was a once in a lifetime opportunity, truly, yeah. even when I left. When I returned, I made up my classes that I missed in college and I thought, who would ever give, again, a girl like me a chance like that again? I've asked myself that a lot of times in my life. I don't ask myself that anymore um, because my thoughts around what is a girl like me are far more positive now right, right, than what right. I thought um, was the way I was viewed when I was younger. And so now I say a, a girl like me deserves a lot now. But back then I thought, who would give a girl like me, you know, a chance, just different tone um, and different frame of reference. And I came back and was a waitress again and was paying my way through college. And then 60 days later, they said, can you go to Central America and go launch the first franchise there? And another several months later, do the same for the first one in South America and Buenos Aires in Argentina, and before I knew it, I was traveling so much around the world. I had opened many restaurants uh, in four continents, right. and I was failing college, so I dropped out of college. <laughs> but the success of them calling you, there's, it seems like two things. At some point, or maybe it was right from the beginning, you were believing yourself, and then you're believing the work, too, because it's very easy to get an opportunity like that so young to be like, well, I'm going to Australia. You know, the different time of I'm going to Australia. I'm going to Australia, or I'm going to Central America. So I guess you really believed in that purpose to, because you ended up becoming an executive at, at Hooters as well too. Yeah, I was, um, as the company grew, I grew. So I, I dropped out of college and then luckily right after they said, we have a corporate job in Atlanta in our corporate office and we'd love for you to interview to come oversee employee training since I was training employees all around the world. And so I, I got the job and I packed up a U-Haul and moved to Atlanta. And as the company grew again, I grew. I took a different job every couple years. Whatever they needed, I did. Whether it was uh, interesting or not interesting, it was all cool and learning to me. And by the time I was 26, I was vice president of the company doing around 800 million in revenue. That's outstanding. And, and, and so uh, what's interesting in there too is I'd love to talk a little bit about school because you, you dropped out because of the demands. Yeah, you did uh, go to get your, your MBA with Georgia State University. And um, so you were in a situation where you didn't need to do that um, because you, you, you were in a career track where you, you, know, you were able to, to kind of do what you want. But what made you want to go back and get that degree? Um, there were a few things that led to me going back to school. One, for many years, I had attempted to make up the classes that I had missed. It was this hole for me. Um, I didn't feel like a failure, but one, I felt that I'd let my mom down because she had worked so hard to give me a better life, to be able to get into school, and I, here I am the first person to get in, and then I'm like, oh, I'm traveling around the world opening Hooters. I think I'll just drop out of college. Um, and she wasn't thrilled, as you can imagine, uh, but she loved that I was so happy and fulfilled. Yeah. So there was a, a piece of unfinished business for me on the bachelor's side where I tried to make up the classes, but with work and schedules and there weren't the plethora of online options that there are today, back at this time, 2007, 2008. Uh, and, um, and so it just didn't work out. Yeah. And a, a mentor of mine gave me a call. She's a recruiter. And she said, look, you've been at Hooters forever. <laughs> and you might need to think about moving on. And I, had, I was just learning so much. It was a privately held company. It kept growing. We ran an airline, which was a bad idea, but I got to learn all about it. We were vertically integrated, so I was able to be so close to the supply chain industry and all different facets of the business that I, it was like I had five careers in one career. And the learning was 
was so diverse that it was almost better than having the same job or similar path at different companies. But she called and said at some point, you know, you're, you're gonna wanna leave and, and here was her advice. She said, you're so well known in your industry. Um, I had led the Georgia Restaurant Association. I had volunteered my time and helped lead the Women's Food Service Forum. I mean, if it was in the food service or hospitality industry as a nonprofit, an association, a development organization, I had built it, run it, volunteered, led the committee, been on the boards, chaired the board probably. And she said, but if you ever wanna leave this industry, you're not gonna get through their HR filter. You're, you worked at Hooters your whole life and you're a college dropout. That is not a stellar resume if you just look at the paper, even though I was so much more than that piece of paper. And she said, you should go back to school, you should finish your degree. And I said to her, I can't even, my brain cannot be wrapped around what it would take to go back and finish my degree. And she said, actually, there's a few examples of people who are seasoned enough um, as an executive that they go to an executive MBA program at these great business schools. And you go nights, weekends, you have to take the GMAT or the GRE and pass with a higher admission score than what is typically required. You have to have more recommendations, so it's not like you can just coast in. Um, but if you can do that, there's an example. Here's someone who has done that before. And it was one of the many points in my life where I benefited from and realized the power of possible. All I needed to know is that it was possible. All she did was say, this is possible and you probably didn't know. I'm like, oh, that's it. Now that I know it, I'm totally doing that. Um, so the power of mentors, the power of perspective, the power of people sharing just what's, what's available to you where, how would I have ever known that? It's not like business schools were publicizing that. Right? They didn't right. want to deal with the filtering of anybody coming off the street saying, hey, I think I should have a, you know, a right. master's degree from your school. Um, so, and, and it wasn't an intentional secret either, but yeah. it's access, like ac you know, access to this type of opportunity. And so I had two weeks to take my GMAT and apply, and I did that with several schools in the, in the Georgia system, got accepted to many and chose Georgia State. Um, and, and so one, there was this guidance from a mentor that she was just saying, don't let doors be closed to you. Even you've, yeah. you've already got the job, you're already you know, well-known in your industry, but why would you let a door be closed? Um, and that, so that was a big motivation and a part of the how it yeah. happened. The other why was because I had a burning question in my mind. And the burning question in my mind was, am I as good of a leader as I think I am? Am I as successful in business as I think I've been because I just know this company inside and out and I've been here for 13, 14 years and I can get anything done because I was there when their kids were born and I helped open their restaurant and you know I have so much relationship capital? Or am I able to do the things I'm able to do because I'm objectively a stellar business leader? And I did not know the answer to that question. And there were only two ways to figure it out. One was to put myself in an environment of other leaders, which would happen through the business school environment. And the other eventually would be to pressure test it by changing companies, by leaving. And so it was more about answering that question for myself than it was anything else because I didn't need it for the job I had. I didn't need it for the next job or two that I would have or opportunity, but the confidence that was built and affirmed through the process was incredibly valuable and would serve me in my progressive roles. Um, so if, if you think about this path from a business perspective too, which is really rich in this element of bringing mentors in to, to make you, you, you're also very passionate about so many other things, you know, even beyond work. Yeah. 
Um, so t your humanitarian work, or I like to call it your social innovation, mm -hmm. is one. What was, when did you start really getting involved in t in from a humanitarian and social work in a, in a, in a big way, the, the way you are now? Um, you know, ever since I grew up in the way that I did, with my mom being on her own, giving back and helping others in need was just important. Not to mention we were a house of only women. And so investing in um, helping young mothers, volunteering at shelters with um, women who were there with their children who were either fleeing violence or just on the street for other reasons was always felt very resonant you know, to me. Um, and it was very relevant to my upbringing. So that felt natural. Even when I was in Florida and when I first came to Atlanta, I found those things. But it, it accelerated when I went through a tough time as an executive. And I'd been traveling so much that I didn't have a lot of friends in Atlanta. My work was my life. My work was my life. And I loved it. Yeah. I didn't feel anything was missing. And until work went through a tough spot. And if work is your life and then work goes through a tough spot, it means your life goes through a tough spot. And it was a, it was a really tough period. I felt sad when I was at home. I felt defeated when I was at work. There were just a lot of things going on that were quite negative at the time. Um, and I took it in, you know, I took it in. I didn't take it on, I took it in. It, it affected me personally. I, I was sick all the time, I had colds, you know, I was just stressed. And I was just feeling kind of dumpy and decided the only way to feel better was to go help someone. And so I went to the Atlanta Union Mission here in Atlanta and just, it was, I was at Hooters at the time and I brought chicken wings and I fed them for the meal service and started bringing our managers every single monthly training class to make it a part of our university to give back to the community. And it was completely selfish, completely selfish because it was this light spot in my otherwise tough chapter. And then I just, as would, you can see the pattern in my career and in my life. I started as a volunteer and then I worked up to leading a committee and then bringing other volunteers and it, you know, start at the bottom and then you're here. You know, come in and give a little and then I'm helping to bring right, other givers right. to the organization. And that got me plugged into other Atlanta community organizations and that paired with my Women's Food Service Forum, you know, helping to elevate and develop women in the hospitality industry. I became known for leading a lot of these nonprofit social impact movements and organizations. So that just, it happened organically, but it was completely self-serving. And then I started getting phone calls because I had led these organizations and I led some fundraisers. And anytime you're leading fundraisers, people are like, ooh, I need you. <laughs> you, know, you know how to raise money and get people with the wallets who care you know, together in a room to give uh, and contribute. And so that led to many opportunities to be a part of changemaker organizations um, that, that run the gamut of the area of life that they, that they impact. And, and so that created a lot of domestic civic um, service and humanitarian work and community service. And then a friend of mine who's a brilliant author and playwright um, was in Rwanda interviewing President Kagame and she, uh, a few of people in the audience know her, and uh, she gave me a call and said, I've just finished interviewing President Kagame and part of the way he's continuing to turn around his country is uh, investing in and elevating and educating women. And he asked if I knew any people who work in women's organizations and I know you, so can you come to Rwanda? Um, I would have never had the opportunity if it weren't for her. For her. Um, I said yes, so yeah, again, silly. saying yes, having never been to Africa. Yeah, I had my passport at that point and uh, uh, went and met her in Rwanda after actually opening up a restaurant in Durham. 
Durban, in South Africa, and it changed my life yet again, and fell in love with the people of Rwanda, the culture, the place, the energy, and that would begin my journey that was now almost 10 years ago of investing in um, Eastern Africa impact causes, whether it was independently through opportunities that, uh, that she brought me uh, and got me involved in, and then uh, a few other organizations and friends said, oh, I'm going to Ethiopia to do work on the border. Will you come with us there? And of course I said yes. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and then that evolved to getting onto the radar of the United Nations because they, the UN Foundation was looking to bring together people who were business-minded, both for-profit and social impact, um, but who had a deep belief in the importance of humanitarian work around the world and believed that the intersection of entrepreneurship and forcibly displaced peoples and those in need um, was an important intersection to bring forward in the world. Um, to help people um, be in business for themselves, but not by themselves. Yeah. And so I was recruited to be a part of this very special group, the United Nations Global Entrepreneurs Council, um, where I've served uh, for several years. And uh, that then brought in my work to the Syrian refugee crisis and uh, helping companies understand what the refugee crisis actually has to do with the work we do here at home. So it is just organic evolution, and the theme is saying yes. And this is, I mean, this is, this is amazing. This is like, you know, really trying to change the world stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic. And then, talking about life-changing stuff, too, you're also, I don't know if it's a new mom is the term, but you probably still feel yeah. that's new. Yeah. So, so, being a, a mom, how, uh, how has this just changed your perspectives about, about you and work and your social work? How, how, how does it all connect with you there? Uh, you know, of course it adds a layer. Yeah. You know, being a mom adds a layer. It adds a layer of worry. I've never been a worrier, and now I have nightmares of bad things happening, and it sucks. Yeah. Um, and you see what's going on in the world, right? And it just makes the bad things that I could typically say, yes, that's bad, but there's so much more good in the world. I can't give that energy. And now that I have a child that's going to go out into the world, I have to give that a little bit of energy. I have to recognize that he you know, will be coming into this world that we are all shaping. So I would say it adds a layer of sense of urgency yeah. to the work. Um, it makes me even more reflective than I was prior on, am I doing the right things yeah. with the companies that, that I run? Um, am I proud of the way we do what we do? Am I proud of our what? Am I proud of our, our how? Um, Am I doing enough to shape my community today? Because it is the community he will be walking in tomorrow. Um, and so I still believe in doing my part with my platform, my resources, my access, my communities to change the world. Yeah. But I believe even more in change the world start at home. Yeah. Um, and so now it's not just me uh, and my husband that is our home. Right. It's how do we teach our son to walk through the world? How do we teach him to um, stand up for what's right and be caring and loving and kind? Uh, how do we make sure that he is a part of a diverse and rich community and um, is, is not privileged or spoiled, but yet benefits from what we've invested in and worked for to give him a better life than what we had. Um, so it puts a lot of heaviness, um, but also specialness around the ability to shape a life. And, and it, it makes me reflect and you see what's going on in the world. Again, the good and the bad. And you think, wow, what, what, what happened on their journey when they were a child? Yeah and that framed and directed their beliefs to lead them to a place to be where they are today to do great things or horrific things. Yeah. And it all starts 
you know, right here. So I, I spend a lot more time thinking about how to be great at home um, than I ever have. Right. How to model the right loving, caring, kind, open, present behavior so that that affects who he is as a human. Uh, and then certainly it makes me even more family focused at work. And, and it makes me less patient because I want to get home to my baby. And so when people are like, can I have one more meeting? I can talk to you in the Uber on the way home. Um, but I'm not going to stay here until 6 o'clock. And it seems that I love it that you make sure there's, one, there's, there's authenticity in everything you're doing, and there's connectivity to, to who you are, whether it's work or home or family. And one thing that I know is important to you, which I would I'd love to talk a little bit about, because I think it, it really kind of brings this picture of, of who you are as well, too. But uh, you are... Um, you are a, uh, f a frequent visitor to Burning Man. <laughs> and frequent visitor. Visitor, and, I, and I'm probably you. And for those of you, in a, feather wearing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and so costume wearing. Burning first of all, because you know, I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, so why don't you tell everybody what Burning Man is, and uh, and how, how you got it, how you kind of got involved with it. Yeah, that's, um, hmm. that's what makes it so beautiful. You can't describe yeah. it, right? <laughs> Just check out my Instagram feed yeah. and you'll see. Um, Burning Man is a festival in the desert that brings together art, music, creativity, and community, uh, essentially. And uh, it is a city that does not exist. And then in a period of a few days becomes the third largest city in Nevada with no infrastructure. And so um, it is shaped by a set of values where most who attend, not all like any society, but most who attend embody um, these principles, uh, things like radical inclusion, radical participation, leave no trace, you know, things that if we could bring forward more in our everyday lives, in our business, in our communities would be a, a really beautiful thing. Um, and, uh, and so I've been going for several years and uh, love it. It feeds my soul. It's yet another extension of my family and community. Right. And I bring uh, the burner ethos to our business as often yeah, as I can. Yeah. And I got married at Burning Man. So it's got another reason to be very special. That's fantastic. Did you see uh, Ocean, uh, you know, Kat's son, yeah. do, you see, do you see him being a little burner at some Oh, time? we will bring him probably <laughs> next year. Really? Yeah. Oh, yes. There's lots of baby burners there. People go, you would bring your kids there? That sounds terrible. Um, look it up. It's amazing. There, um, there are letters, op-eds that 13, 14, 15-year-olds yeah. that have grown up attending Burning Man or other types of community art-rich festivals. You see how these children are so independent. They, they grow up thinking weird is normal. They're, they're resilient to bullying. They think oddity and diversity is the most beautiful thing, and they feel uncomfortable when it's not there. Yeah. Um, how, how amazing would it be to have more people in our world where, you know, children who are coming into the world leading with a desire for difference? Like, wow, right? Um, and, and everyone can't go to Burning Man, and you don't have to. Right? There's right. ways to create that in your home and in your community to make sure what children see and um, the power of play, you know, dressing up and being silly and not being on that schedule all the time, um, chasing the sunrise and chasing the sunset, you know, follow the sun. Absolutely. I mean, just it sounds super hippie. Um, and, but just we can all find our own way in our own home and our own community to create play and creativity and community and the behaviors of leave no trace, right? Clean up after yourself. Um, and radical inclusion. If someone seems to be alone, go talk to them. Ask them things. You don't need to be a burner, you know, right, to do right, that, right. and you don't need privilege to do that. 
Um, I'm very sensitive to the advice that people give that comes from a place of privilege, you know, where, yes, spending your time in a desert for a week, you got to be pretty privileged to be able to take time off work, right, and go do that. And I get that. But we don't have to have privilege to teach our kids to say thank you and to think oddity, uh, what is considered oddity, is beautiful, uh, and to care for people and to hug them and to show love. That can happen anywhere, in any community, at any time. Uh, and that, seeing that so powerfully, so concentrated, um, sits right. deep within my soul and is a, a motivator to remember that it's each of our jobs to bring a little piece of that, um, whether it's to work, home, community, whatever it is. So how do you reconcile um, all these amazing dimensions? So one day you're in the you know, desert of Nevada, as, you know, I guess you're always a burner, yeah. so, but you're, you're always a burner, so you're a burner. Um, then you're a corporate executive the next moment, accountable to your, to your private equity firm and the you know, very demanding results there, and also to the you know, thousands of employees that rely on employment there and all the decisions there. And you know, obviously your, your, your family and, your, and then your social work. And if someone could say, you walk in the corporate hallways, how do you stay true to you yeah. um, and, and yet be so successful? Yeah. Um, I get asked this a lot, and I recognize that from the outside, these things could look quite disparate and disconnected. But I think the world is in a different place today. Right? We can lead and shine our authentic light everywhere. And yeah, I don't wear the same costumes that I wear in the desert with boots and boy shorts and desert gear to the office. Of course I don't do that. Um, but I am the same loving, hugging, authentic, candid light of a human in the desert as I am in the office, as I am in Eastern Africa, as I am at the Atlanta Union Mission, as I am at home. Um, and I think part of what the world needs is giving more people permission um, for us to give ourselves permission to be that brightest version of ourselves, whatever that means, and to give others that permission to not shun them when they're a little, you know, a little different at the office or when they're um, a little more business oriented at the humanitarian event or what, you know, whatever it is. And so for me, these things aren't disparate and they're not in conflict. The connection is me, right? It is me. I am the bridge between them. And none of us, I don't think many of us today live these highly polarized lives where everything fits cleanly in the suit we wear every day. Um, but rather we have varied interests and um, the ability to bring that forward is a level of authenticity that by the way from a pure business perspective allows my company to get at the highest return on its investment in me. Because I'm not having to spend energy trying to calm or quiet my truth. You know I have Tattoos. Um, I'm a burner. They know it. I don't sneak out of the building Labor Day week to go to Burning Man, right? Nice. They have, I am reminding everyone for the months ahead of time, Mama's going to be gone in the desert. Uh, so this, this concept of reconciliation is really interesting because it means they don't belong together, and you're trying to figure out how they come together. I think the opposite is needed, is to be proud of the strength and the diversity and the commonality that when we bring our full selves forward, of the, the uniqueness and the value that that adds to every situation. And um, I will not stand for someone saying, you're a hypocrite because you're a corporate person and a burner, because you're an advocate for women's rights, yet you worked at Hooters. Um, you're an advocate for health, yet Cinnabon is in your portfolio. That doesn't make me a hypocrite. 
right? I'm on a journey. We're all on a journey. And the things that I do, I am on a journey to help my teams do them better and better and better tomorrow. And who would you rather have run companies like that? Someone who doesn't care? Or someone who cares so deeply that they're going to help those organizations be on an incredible journey? And who's to say you're in the right place and I'm in the wrong place? We're all on a journey. Um, and I take great pride in being in this space of what you just described. Yeah. Um, but it does mean I feel unwelcome sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I belong everywhere, and sometimes I feel that I belong nowhere. I am the hippie in the corporate office, and so that means sometimes my views are not shared. And I am the corporate person in the deeply humanitarian social impact circles, and sometimes that means I am persona non grata, or at least I'm challenged deeply, but I love being challenged. I want to continually grow and be better and reflect and help others do the same, um, but I will not stand for being criticized for it or being called a hypocrite or being um, told you really need to figure out which side you should be on, right? I don't, I don't need to pick a side, you pick a side. I don't need to pick a side. Um, I'm getting the beauty of all of these worlds, and yes, I may evolve and change. I'm a different person today than I was a few years ago. Um, and, and, but I will say a, a part of the um, process that some would call reconciliation that I go through is about constantly rerouting in my values and, and exercising something I call the hotshot rule, which is asking myself if someone with complete badassery were in my seat tomorrow, if you had everything I have, if you were, if you were the COO and president of Focus Brands, if you were the wife of Daly and the, the mother of Ocean, if you were the daughter of Joe, um, what would you do with those gifts? And the reality is you would be so grateful because it's this new first day that there is probably one thing you would do differently and more aggressively than I would because I'm blinded by my own progress. And so I have an exercise where I think, if I'm gone tomorrow and you are in my seat, what is the one thing you're going to change immediately because it's your first day? This is the worst it's ever going to be when Alex is cat. Um, and why can't that be me? Why can't I look at my life and opportunity with fresh eyes? And sometimes that does mean I change my position. And sometimes that does mean whatever I did yesterday, I don't feel great about it anymore. I'm going to do something different today. And that's okay. And that allows me to be on a journey. It allows me to grow. It allows me to model vulnerability and a bias for action that allows me to transform and evolve and help the companies and teams that I run do the same. Yeah. And it sounds like so much of this is just being authentic and every decision you make to, to you, to the company, and embracing conflict in, that, in those authentic decisions as well, too. I think so much people think conflict is bad, but you, you view it that that's, that's what makes you you. you know? yeah. And so that's fantastic. The friction that makes the sparks, Absolutely. right? <laughs> so uh, we're going to have to open it up to questions here. But uh, before we do, if, uh, with obviously Ocean, and by the way, uh, Kat's very transparent about all this. So if you haven't already, uh, follow her on Instagram in particular, and hashtag coffee trance is one of the, you know, is a My hit. son's obsessed with coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and it is pretty cool. And uh, daily, uh, and what he is an amazing athlete, and the things, I, the, you know, after I met Kat a, a while back is when he was doing, what was it, 100 uh, mile? Yeah, he was running a 100-mile race. He rode across the Atlantic Ocean, and now he's with, you know, Engage Ventures here in Atlanta, startup guys. But she's just incredible storyteller, Kat. As you can tell, she's an incredible storyteller. But to see Daly going on this journey, I was like, you know, okay, you know it was pretty, pretty amazing, um, and, and including what's going on with, you know, Burning Man. So definitely there's a transparency to you that I think is part of your authenticity as well, too. So make sure you follow Kat on social media. Um, but if you were to think, fast forward 20 years from now, and think about uh, 
I'm an old burner. What would you, and you have, yeah, that's burner. right, slow burner. What, burner. what is it that you want ocean to think about, to be able to embrace about you? What is it that you would want ocean to say that, because mom has given me this as a result of, I, I hope that when he's, he'll be 21 yeah. at that point, um, I hope he says, my mom has shown me that there's always a better way to be. Um, I wrote a letter to him and posted it on every social media channel that um, was just motivated by the times we're in, and some things going on. And um, the letter to him was that I hope Times have changed by the time you get older, and we are in a wonderful place in our world, but there's still so much work we have to do, right? Um, and I hope that you're the type of person that if some of these things haven't improved to the degree that I would have hoped, that when you're around something that's unacceptable, that you say, we don't do that here, right? There's always a better way. And, and I'm often reminded, I heard a speaker once say, you know, there are things that used to be done 10 years ago 20 years ago, 100 years ago, that were abominations of humanity, considered abominations of humanity today, but they were taught by the highest institutions 100 years ago, right? Churches, universities, parents. Think about all the things. You can fill in the blank of what those things were. And yet they were taught by the highest institutions as what is right and normal. And today, we, the ancestors of those people, look back and say, that is unacceptable. Abominations of humanity. Mm -hmm. How do we progress as people if we don't allow ourselves and our children to be on that journey of saying, even today, right, what might that be today that we do? What might all of us in this room do today that our children, when they grow up, say, Mom, how could you have done that? What is it, eating meat, maybe? <laughs> really? You, I mean, they, they might say, how could you have done that? Because not only will, will the education progress and the science progress, but the compelling alternatives will progress as well. Right? There are alternatives to things, and then that, that forces acceleration of a change. And so I hope my son says, wow, no matter how good I think I am, there is always a better way to be. We have more information, we have more inputs, and we have more alternatives today than we did two years ago. Um, so I hope he sees that I was always on a journey right. to acknowledge things I could do differently and help others do the same. And I hope he builds that muscle Absolutely. as a human. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Kat. Yeah. And let's uh, uh, open it up to some questions. I think there's a microphone someplace back yeah. there, too. Hey, Kat. I was kind of talking to you about this earlier, but I was watching a YouTube video about lessons you've learned in unexpected places. And I'm just wondering, are there any recent lessons that you've learned, not necessarily from your, like, more from your recent past than your latter past? Yeah. Um, so many. <laughs> You know, I, I run an organization that is a, it's, it's multiple brands run by multiple presidents and teams, then executed by franchisees. And what that means is at the end of the line, the execution of the thing is so many layers removed from me and my teams. And I mean, layers of time, layers of people, layers of expense, and I mean, just layers and layers removed. And so how, if you are the leader, this is a question I ask. If you are the leader and you know things are going to take all that time and all that space and be shaped by the journey to get to the customer or the employee, how do I make sure that I'm focusing on the few things 
that matter the most. Um, and I have maybe, I guess it was seven or eight years ago, um, realized that in an effort to move fast and help companies innovate and disrupt and lead to the tone of this topic, um, how can I make sure that we're not moving so fast that we um, miss out on the right way to do things? And when I took over as president of Cinnabon, there was a, an innovation initiative that was moving very quickly that as the new president, I put my name on it and told everyone, hey, this is, you know, this is coming. And uh, it turned out to be something very different than what I said it was without my knowledge. And it looked like I had lied uh, and intentionally misled the franchisees. And uh, I have, uh, I, in that moment, I realized outside of losing life and losing love, there are few things worse than losing trust. And certainly when you are the leader. It made my team incredibly uncomfortable because they didn't know what was going on. It made me incredibly uncomfortable. And my franchisees were lawyering up. Um, and it's the, it was the worst feeling and the darkest point in my career. And when I reflected on how it all happened, it happened so fast, the lessons were innovation always outpaces your corporation, right? So whatever exists in your company is never good enough for whatever the new thing is. And you just gotta know that and have all hands on deck to try to be prepared for it because you'll never catch it. And of course, innovation always outpaces regulation as well. The laws weren't built for Uber, Airbnb, et cetera. And my company wasn't built for launching new multi-channel products that happen faster. And um, a few things happened, one, I had to make one of those classic leadership decisions, money over culture. Um, do I keep this line of business that we launched? Because we have the right to do it, um, but we didn't do it the right way. And I wasn't as involved in, as I should have been, and we killed the business. Um, because I needed to demonstrate to my franchisees that if we make a mistake and we don't handle something properly, I am going to fix it. And that meant walking away from money which meant, by the way, having to not promote people, not pay bonuses. You know, there, there was a real downside effect to people in the organization, but the right thing to do was to stop and say, we didn't handle this the right way, even though we had the right to do it, uh, and, and acknowledge that I had this incredible failure of leadership in this moment. And the failure of leadership wasn't the actual thing, because that had started before I joined. Uh, and I had some overzealous salespeople that sold pretty aggressively into a channel and said yes to a lot of things they shouldn't have said yes to. But as a leader of a family or a company, um, I believe that the way to show up the best is to have a blend of humility and curiosity on one side and courage and confidence on the other. And if you over-index on one or the other, the outcomes are predictable and suboptimal. And in this case, I over-indexed on humility because I was the new leader. I was the young leader. I was the only female leader. I was the only, right? And when you're the only in the room and when you have deep respect for those who are there, most of the people in the business had been there longer than I'd been alive. Literally, they'd been in the industry longer than I'd been on the planet. And I had deep deference for that. And I had the humility to ask this question. Who am I to question them? Right, I'm sure it's fine. What, they wouldn't do anything that would hurt the business. But I failed to have the courage to answer the question. And the answer to the question, who am I, to question them, is I am the freaking president. And if I don't question them, no one will. And I didn't ask the questions I should have along the way to stay close enough to this very volatile but exciting innovation. And if I had asked those questions, I would have known what had changed and I would have been able to stop it. So while I didn't create it, Ultimately, as the leader, the, the failure was mine. 
And so the lesson, of course, is back to stay close to the action. Um, when you find yourself in that moment of asking in your self-talk, who am I to question them? Answer the question. And the question is, the company is paying you. Whether you're the president or the vice president or the director or the assistant, they're paying you and they deserve to get 100% return on that investment. So you should speak your mind, especially if you think there's something that could harm the company or an opportunity that's an upside. So it was a big lesson via a mistake in my position. Uh, thank you for your time here today. I think my question is, what would you advise, what's your number one piece of advice for a budding food concept that wants to be a franchise? Budding food concept that wants to be a franchise. Before I answer, I'll explain what I think is so critical in franchising. In franchising, you are growing with other people's capital, right? They are investing their life savings into what you say works. You better be sure it works, is my answer. Um, people who start concepts, who start to franchise fast, in my opinion, are um, facing a potentially reckless proposition. Because if you've only opened one or done it in one place, how do you know what is actually driving that success? If you did it in a city, does it work in the suburbs? If it works in the south, does it work in the north? I would say if you're starting a budding business, give it a little growth time under your leadership to pressure test its resilience to figure out what really is driving its success so that you do truly have a formula and IP to sell to a franchisee. They pay you a royalty because the brand should have value over something that they would otherwise start on their own and you should have proven it out in multiple places to de-risk their investment. Um, so that would be my advice. Hey, Kat. Um, thanks again for coming. Uh, what I loved most about your talk is that I think you inspired us all to be better people, and that's amazing, so thank you for that. I have two questions. First, do you have a defined personal purpose? And second, how often do you eat at Cinnabon? Ah, nice. <laughs> now that we have Jamba Juice, I eat there a little less. I've been waiting for a healthy brand in the portfolio. No, we have our restaurant brands, Moe's, Schlotzky's, McAllister's. I can eat salads there, delicious salads all day long. Um, so my purpose, I didn't know it at the time, but it became clear to me pretty early on. Um, my purpose is I help people realize they're capable of more than they know. That is it. And so whether I do that through franchising, through mentorship, through being a mom, through being a wife, through doing things like this, investing my time, as long as I'm on that path, that's my purpose. I'm on purpose in both meanings of that phrase. I'm intentional on purpose and I'm on my purpose. Whenever I'm in a place where the ability to help people realize they're capable of more than they know is optimized. Um, and that could be speaking, it could be writing, it could be leading franchisees. Uh, and it became apparent to me when I was pretty young, you know, by helping my sisters and then being in these leadership roles at such a young age and encouraging people that they could open these restaurants with a brand that had no translation in any language. <laughs> um, you know, helping them believe they could do it and then seeing it actually come true and then being on that journey the rest of my life. And Cinnabon, far too often, we have the mini bon and the bites now, so I have the little baby ones. I responsibly indulge. Um, I smell cat coal 2020. <laughs> there we go.
Starting right here. In all seriousness, any aspirations for politics? Um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I have aspirations for politics. Um, I've been asked the question a lot over the years, um, and my answer used to be, um, the public would never support a girl like me with my background, a burner, a Hooters girl, and I know I'm like, oh, they would definitely be fine with that now. Um, so that used to be my excuse. Um, now that's gone. Um, so he, here's where my head is around politics. One, I want to be as engaged as I can be. I love talking politics. I do not believe it should be kept out of the workplace. I do not believe it should be kept out of social circles. I'm very open about my politics, but I'm open about um, everyone bringing their values to bear and to use the gift we have of this hard-fought democracy to exercise their rights, their votes, their voice to shape our world. Um, again, change the world, start at home. They're our own communities. And so for now, I think I can use my platform, both being a business person and a social impact giver, to influence politics. I can canvas, I can use my platform to influence politics and to encourage people to really think about what will drive change in their communities, and it might not be the thing they think. Um, so I like using the platform I have to shape politics. I don't have current aspirations to be in politics. But because my purpose is helping people realize they're capable of more than they know, there may be a point where some type of office is in my path. I don't see that today, um, but you never know. Well, Kat, I think uh, it, it's, this is fantastic. So thank you for being here. You know, in a world where people like to you know, describe themselves by the, by the one line on LinkedIn, you show that whether you're a corporate executive, you could be much more than a corporate executive in every aspect. And I love how you bring everything about your life into everything you do, which makes everything you do that much richer. So I always say that I think if you had a, a, def, a picture of the definition of authentic, it'd be Kat Cole. Kat, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. That was Kat Cole on the Disruptor Studio. And this Disruptor Studio is filmed in front of a live audience and you could watch it on our YouTube channel. So make sure to check it out and subscribe. We will be coming back with more of the Disruptor Studio every two weeks. So also just subscribe here on to your favorite podcast platform as we talk to new guests about their innovators' DNA, their X Factor, the things that just make them so authentic in their leadership and helps them drive transformation, innovation, and greatness. This Disruptor Studio with Kat Cole was, as I mentioned, filmed live and was produced by Highwire Group in association with Dagger. And the live show was also presented to you by Dragon Army, 352, the Metro Atlanta Chamber, and Moto Moto. Make sure to check us out on social media and join the conversation. And I will see you in two weeks here on the Disruptor Studio.